So I think in China, when you talk to someone about SaaS, they typically link it with a type of software architecture rather than the recurrent payment theme. And so that's one thing. And cloud computing is more understood as cloud adoption rather than using a last platform. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. The Chinese digital ecosystem is completely decoupled from the rest of the world. For example, cloud computing and software as a service, otherwise known as SaaS. Today, I have Lillian Lee, founder of Chinese Characteristics Newsletter. Lillian, welcome to the show. Glad to be on, Bernard. Thanks for having me. I've heard you on various podcasts. For example, Benedict Evans, the Acquire podcast by Ben and David, and also with Rima as well. So I really want to have this conversation. But since it's your first time on the show, how do you start your career? Yeah, so I grew up in the West. I was born in China, but quite traditional, actually. So after university, in which I did economics, and then very ambitiously layered that on with a master's in development studies, where... I had initially wanted to become a World Bank economist, but had that slightly ruined by a very pragmatic insight into the world of development. Decided to do a 180 and go full corporate by going to management consulting with LEK Consulting. And then after about two and a half years of doing a lot of private equity due diligence, somehow managed to find myself in venture. I mean, it's a funny story because essentially... I had thought I was joining a growth equity slash private equity house. And on the first day, I'm not even joking, on the first day of my new job, I sit down at the Monday morning meeting and then hear terms like liquidity preference and other things that I had never come across in all of my PE prep. And then slowly but surely it dawned on me that I had actually joined venture capital, which is one of the best mistakes I've ever made with my career, to be honest. And then so I spent about five-ish coming up to six years in Europe, investing across Europe and Israel, predominantly in SaaS, but also really across all the spectrum of technology and internet before coming back to China last year in August and accidentally starting my newsletter called Chinese Characteristics, where I write long form analysis about Chinese tech from the perspective of Western VC. What brought you back to China and eventually what was the motivation to set up the Chinese Characteristics newsletter? I had always wanted to come back to China partly for family reasons, but every time I came back to visit, I was always blown away by the pace of progress here and by listening to podcasts like GGV, sometimes your podcast as well. I was really impressed by the progress and the pace of innovation that was happening. So from a deep desire just to be where the action is at. In the back of my mind, I had always wanted to try. And I think the pandemic, for me, like it did for many other people, just made a lot of life decisions very starkly and kind of said, hey, this thing that you wanted to do, are you going to do it? And so for me, it was almost like a now or never moment. And I made the pretty drastic decision to quit my job and uproot my entire life and move back last year. Had I a master plan when I was coming back to write a newsletter? Of course not. I mean, for me, it really started off as a deep desire to see this kind of writing exist in the world, because I had, I'm sure you and you know your listeners do, spend time reading Ben Thompson, Benedict Evans, these very thoughtful, long pieces on technology dissection about Western tech. And I had struggled to find something that was on the equivalent level for Chinese tech. So 
from a very selfish perspective, I just wanted this to exist in the world. And therefore, when I was in quarantine and wondering, okay, now I've you know, quit my entire life and moved back to China, what should I do? It was a way for me to say, okay, here's something I could do. And so I took all of this background knowledge I had of tech and my understanding of Chinese culture and then tried to make sense of the things I was seeing on the ground, which was very strange to me at the beginning. And then as I was writing, I think it also resonated with others. And before I know it, I kind of built a small audience. So it was a very accidental move that I now write this newsletter, at least publicly facing as a full-time job. So you have a very interesting career from being an investor to now analyzing the Chinese tech industry. What are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience about your career journey? Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a great question. And I can only say these are things I've realized in hindsight might not work for everyone. So for me, I would say kind of three things. Firstly is accumulation of skills is needed at the beginning of every career. And I feel that ran counter to a lot of advice I've heard very earlier on about following your passion. I think it's, of course, great to follow your passion. I, to a certain extent, am following you know, my passion of analyzing tech. But that's off a long basis of years of working as management consultant and also in venture capital, which I also tremendously enjoyed. But I entered those jobs with half a mind to pick up transferable concrete skills. And I think that's really important at the beginning of one's career. The second thing I think was helpful for me, and this is kind of tried, but creative hustling is actually underrated. I know everyone talks about hustling, but I think when you're actually sitting on the other end and seeing how many pitches you get from folks and how plain some of the pitches are, you really actually realize that just by taking the initiative, reaching out to people, pounding the pavements, and then making something and quote unquote hustling, actually puts you head and shoulders above a lot of other people. And that's something I kind of learned earlier on, because one of the less glamorous sides about management consulting, at least during my days that no one talked about, was you had to talk to a lot of industry experts, but you talk to them without paying them. So I spent a lot of my time cold calling industry experts and trying to convince them to tell me their industry secrets. As you can imagine, that is a very tall task, but very good training for someone at the beginning, because you learned to do a lot of things including my third piece of interesting career lessons, right? Which is that I think selling is the secret skill that people do not tell you about. And I think for any service job, including professional service, at the very top and definitely in the middle, selling is what you have to do. You have to sell to your clients, sell internally, sell yourself, sell your ideas. We might not say it as such, but it's essentially just influencing, convincing people. And I definitely found that once I made the transition to venture capital and I remember kind of this fantastic way of framing venture that was given to me, which is that VCs are salespeople and what we sell is money. And what VCs tend to do is find promising startups who do not really need money because currently money is pretty plentiful. And then you try to sell these great startups that you are the person they should partner with and they should really take your money because you're going to be so helpful to them. So you spend a lot of time selling. And in the beginning, I think, if, especially if you're analytical, selling is a very dirty word, dirty concept, and I spent a lot of time kind of resisting it. But I kind of wish I got more comfortable with the idea sooner, and then I am able to find a mode that I'm comfortable with. I try to be insightful as much as I can, try to be valuable with what I say to the general public, and that's my mode of selling. I don't try to sort of convince you I'm like the funniest person ever or coolest person ever, because I'm obviously not. So just finding these few lessons that... 
I'm taking the perspective, had I talked to myself 10 years earlier, I would have shared these with her. What are the key topics and themes which you cover on the Chinese characteristics newsletters? So it's kind of evolved and I would group it under five big categories over as I've seen them develop. One is almost kind of the traditional, I cover deep analysis on companies. So I will write about Billy Billy and the product strategy. I will write about Ant Group. I will write about Pindodor and explain what's the company history? How do they make money? What's their product? Do I think this is a good company? Do I think it's a bad company? Typical company overviews, which is one bucket. Others, which is tech trend explainers. So things that I see that are very hot in China, which um, I think could be interesting for tech watchers around the world. So last year it was things like community group buying or live streaming monetization or live streaming e-commerce, it's now called, and also how, say, Chinese tech gamifies a lot of its products. So these big trends that I'm seeing, which I think is very different to the Western counterparts, I will highlight. Um, I talk a lot about SaaS and cloud, as we'll probably discuss in detail later on. Um, and also because of my development background, I actually talk a lot about the enabling factors that sets Chinese tech on a different trajectory to the Western counterparts, because I don't want to make it out to be that China is this like mystical place that um, has evolved completely randomly. I think there are very concrete reasons for the way it has evolved, and I try to highlight some of those reasons in these kind of starting conditions, quote-unquote, bucket. And then the last bucket, which I had never thought I would write about, but actually spend a decent amount of my time thinking about nowadays, is Chinese governance and regulations. As I'm sure anyone who's keyed up on Chinese tech this year <laughs> realized, the government has a very big say in Chinese tech and China in general. And I think that has been a very interesting lesson for everyone to learn. So again, funny how we connect the dots looking backwards, but my development masters, which I thought was completely useless at the time, and I had written my dissertation on Chinese governance, has now actually come into great use since I now spend my time reading the 14th five-year plan and thinking about why tech regulations come happen and how these ministries fit under other ministries. So um, let that be a lesson, you know, those bizarre arts degrees that you take can actually be helpful later on in life. You just never know where. So that's the fifth bucket, Chinese governance. So to summarize, starting conditions of an economy, company overviews, tech trend explainers, SaaS and cloud, and then governance. I'm sure regulatory risk is now the most important thing to state in a Chinese startup business plan. Yeah. The funny thing is when I look back on previous IPOs for um, Billy Billy and others, they all state regulatory requirements, but I think no one actually took them seriously or not as seriously as they do this year. So yeah, I think the importance level has definitely been moved up by several notches. Mm. So they were being very honest about it. How do you look at the Chinese market now? Is it just a giant Galapagos island with its own evolution distinctly different from the rest of the world? Or maybe there's just some nuances that is different, as you pointed out earlier, when you talk about the topics you cover? It's a very good question. And I guess it depends on how we define Galapagos Island, where we kind of say nothing from this ecosystem can ever exist outside of this ecosystem. Now, if we take that definition, I don't think that's quite true. Uh, but if we take the definition that it has its own unique creatures that's very different from the ecosystem outside, I think that definition would be true. So while we look at Tencent, Alibaba, 
ByteDance, Meituan, they all sort of have their Western equivalent. Tencent is Facebook, Alibaba is Amazon, Baidu is Google, and then Meituan is like DoorDash and Grubhub, a bunch of these kind of delivery, but also more because it does a whole host of life services. So you can find the equivalent, but they look very different from their Western counterparts and they follow, I would have said different logic, but actually it's interesting again, seeing how the logic of owning the user has increasingly converged in both uh, Western ecosystems and Chinese tech ecosystems. As I think people realize the, um, the starting conditions for both is there's a market now for the West market that theoretically seemed at the beginning to be much bigger because initially it would, would be US for say the US tech players, but then they can expand to Europe and Latin America and Africa. Whereas even though the tech market is very big initially in China, they also know it's a very defined market. So I think competition is much more fierce because they realize how defined that market is. And so I think what the US tech ecosystem has also come to realize is that they also need to own the user and extract more from a single user in terms of revenue in order to keep growing. But that was a fact that was realized very early on by the Chinese tech ecosystem. And therefore they have evolved in certain ways with certain product strategies that very much match this product philosophy. So in some ways, I actually see a coming convergence definitely in the consumer tech space. And on the previous definition of would the innovations in China definitely stay in China? I think not. I think ByteDance and TikTok and Douyin has shown um, a very great example of how a domestically born Chinese product in some sense, because we can also get into depth and say musically was actually also quite international before acquired. So, but we, we can say at least this is mostly made by a very kind of Chinese focused team. And they have taken a lot of product philosophy and designs and algorithms and made that work internationally really well. So um, in the future, I also see this trend as maybe not the biggest trend, but definitely a trend going forward. Which comes to the main subject of the day, which we are going to talk about because you and I both have backgrounds with cloud computing and software as a service or SaaS solution, but we want to focus on China. I want to baseline our understanding on cloud computing and SaaS. For the rest of the world outside China, we are familiar with Amazon Web Services, which I previously worked in Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud Platform as examples of cloud computing. I know AWS also operates in China as well. There is a Ningxia availability zone. And if you think about SaaS solutions, you think about a Salesforce or sometimes even Databricks or Snowflake, which I think is a form of a SaaS solution. How do you define cloud computing and SaaS broadly and then apply the lens where their Chinese counterparts have evolved with their own characteristics? So let's say cloud computing is more like infrastructure as a service and SaaS can be software as a service. So for both, I think it's a way of structuring software and also a different sales model. The sales model for both cloud computing slash LAS and SaaS are similar. It's kind of on a recurrent basis. You pay for usage or you essentially pay a monthly fee, a monthly recurring fee for both of them. Some nuances and whether that's a flat fee or whether it occurs by usage as it does with cloud computing. So that's one thing on the business side. And then on the software architectural side, it also means it's public, it's multi-tenanted often, and what it's not is not on-premise and is not private. And for kind of these two parts of both the business and software architecture structures, that's broadly consensual in the Western tech ecosystem is not quite true in China. So I think in China, when you talk to someone about SaaS, 
they typically link it with a type of software architecture rather than the recurrent payment theme. And so that's one thing. And cloud computing is more understood as cloud adoption rather than using a last platform. I mean, I think increasingly people also recognize it as using a last platform, but it's very fuzzy since that is still undergoing the early trajectories in China, shall we say. And so often people feel like for both it is a technological slash software progress rather than you're talking about a specific business model. Traditionally, what has happened is that um, digitization has not been very prevalent in China. Uh, China has evolved kind of very fast without too much need to digitize relative to the Western counterparts. And so a lot of data still sits on paper around an organization. And so when we look at cloud computing, we're really kind of talking about have certain industries or companies digitized enough to be ready to adopt cloud computing. And that is very disparate across different industries. Some industries are very advanced. They have, they're on cloud, they've automated a lot of workflows and they're ready for SaaS. Now these tend to be industries that are in close contact with the internet giants, as you can imagine, because the internet giants themselves are digital natives and therefore they have brought online a lot of the supply chain. So when we're talking about retail, a lot of the SMEs involved in retail because of the interaction with Alibaba or Meituan are very digitized. But take another sector like manufacturing, very low levels of digitization. And so for cloud computing, there is very nascent and they still have to go through maybe initial phase of digitization before they can talk about cloud computing and reaping the benefits of that. And then if we take a step back and think about how the last pass and SaaS structure work um, together, it's harder to talk about SaaS sometimes when you don't even have concepts of last or pass as these foundational blocks. So I think SaaS often ends up um, being even further down on the priority list if you haven't digitized, if you don't have last platforms or even private cloud platforms. So again, you see very heterogeneous adoption of both cloud computing and SaaS in China. So some verticals are very advanced and other verticals not so much. Which are the key computing platforms in China? Because in Southeast Asia, we are aware of AliCloud and Tencent Cloud. They are actually present in our region, along with their US counterparts. But what about the rest, which may or may not have started their geographic expansion? Various reports won't differ on the exact market share, but I think there is consensus that Alibaba or AliCloud is the market leader now with around 40% of the market. And then there's about kind of three or four close followers. And they're all kind of around the same at maybe, you know, 20% to 15%. But the jury is out on who exactly leads the pack. And they tend to be a mixture of Tencent Cloud, Huawei Cloud, China Telecom, and AWS gets in there as well. Um, I think from talking to the market from my end, I would say currently Huawei is number two in the market and then is Tencent. But obviously, it differs on specific industries as well. As we know, Tencent is very strong in gaming. So if we're looking at specific verticals, they might actually have a very good lead there, especially given the fact that they often encourage their portfolio companies to also adopt their cloud. So holistically, the ranking goes early cloud, Huawei cloud, Tencent cloud, and China Telecom. But, you know. It, it gets very complicated very quickly once we look down. That's interesting because Huawei Cloud has just recently 
landed in the Southeast Asia region. I've actually seen a couple of friends of mine who have joined from their startups to join Huawei Club now, running their cloud computing efforts within the region itself. What I'm interested is in the communication side, where for Alibaba and Tencent, for Alibaba, there is ThinkTalk, which I hear is analogous to how Slack is for enterprises. And there is also WeChat for work. How are these communication services different from the US counterparts? Yeah, great question. So I think just taking a step back, and actually, if I could just invoke um, a starting condition about Chinese tech ecosystems that is not as prevalent in the US. So what you see in the Chinese tech ecosystem is that there is actually a, a lot of green space. And that was the case when Alibaba and Tencent came online. And that is the case as they now move into Dingtalk and WeChat. And maybe a, a good third player to mention is actually Feishu slash Lark by ByteDance. When you have a lot of green space, it lends itself to, at least the thinking goes, it lends itself to kind of super app structure or monolithic software structure because it's harder to get people to use piecemeal products and also people kind of want everything in one. So when we talk about Ding Talk or WeChat for work or Facebook as being kind of Slack, yes, there's definitely a messaging component, but actually when you dig into the software, what you realize very quickly is how comprehensive they are. I would say there's also often scheduling capabilities, calendar capabilities, collaboration capabilities, kind of like a Google suite mixed with messaging. And if they don't have them directly in the platform itself, both ThingTalk, um, Facebook, and have at least made attempts at building out ecosystems that you can add these features on. So I would firstly say, even though I know Slack has many integrations, especially for developers. It probably doesn't have as much, at least in my limited usage of it, in terms of just general office collaborations and communications and scheduling. Now, both DingTalk, Facial wants to be kind of the default center for uh, where work gets done in an office place. So they build their offerings towards that. WeChat for work is actually a very interesting case because they definitely started off wanting to com compete in the enterprise chat space. But what they realized very quickly was that WeChat is too powerful. People still just communicated on WeChat. And so no one actually used WeChat for work. And so that's gone through a bit of lull. And now the product has actually been rebranded as a almost CRM chat interface system for retailers to communicate with their customers. So it's become a B2B2C product rather than a company internal usage product. So I think that's also quite an interesting trend to see so to answer your question, I would say for each of these products, when you dig into them, are way more comprehensive than and, and more of a platform than what Slack potentially is for the West, even though I know Slack has a lot of functionalities as well. That's right. Slack can integrate with Google Calendar, Microsoft Outlook, mm -hmm. and basically bring different things into the Slack ecosystem. Whereas I think in China, there's this wall garden approach where Alipay disallow everyone who's allied to Tencent. Of course, that has changed thanks to government regulation and antitrust. Do you foresee that this will also happen in the enterprise space or maybe enterprise is just different from consumer internet and then let's just do the wall gardens in the enterprise space? So the question is, would the ward garden approach still continue to exist in the enterprise yes. or would they have to open... I think the enterprise space lends itself quite well to ward gardens. I think that's also the case you can make with, say, Salesforce in the US, right? It's still a very ward space. I think the slight different thing that would change is Ali, Tencent, and ByteDance 
might have previously tried. I know Ali definitely tried to make companies only work with their ecosystem rather than allow them to work with multiple ecosystems. So I think that definitely will change. So at least from a startup working with big platforms perspective, that will have more lenience. But I can't directly foresee how, you know, Ali's talk will open itself completely to, to the outside. That comes to the SaaS piece. Are there equivalents for Salesforce, for CRM, Twilio, like developer API for communications or Databricks, analytics and AI, where I actually find ByteDance, a volcanic engine, Huashan Yinqing, or ByteClass that is known to the rest of the world, similar to Databricks in China? The tradition for Chinese tech has always been they see a successful example in the West and then some enterprising founder will say, hey, it's worked in the US, it's going to work in the Chinese market, let's copy it and see what happens. So to your question, are there equivalents? Definitely there are equivalents. But the question we should be asking is, are they going to be successful equivalents? And the question is, not yet. And that goes back to my earlier point of there is enormous heterogeneous adoption of cloud and SaaS across industries. And so what's been quite, it's been quite difficult for horizontal SaaS products to actually exist. Bar, kind of Dingtalk and, and Feishu, and even they've semi-struggled. They've only kind of been strong on certain industries and not on others. Because I used to work at Salesforce, I, I worked at Salesforce Ventures. One of my big questions in coming back was, where is the Chinese equivalent for Salesforce? And what I've actually found is you'll see the CRM capabilities in a lot of verticalized SaaS solutions but you won't have a horizontal SaaS platform because the workflow is so different for different industry that it's really hard to make an all-encompassing platform that works for everyone, even though many have tried. And many have thought the initial issue was because China worked on mobile and not on email, but that's not that alone. I think the real issue is the difference in digitization and the difference in workflow even within an industry and that is just magnified across industry which has meant it's been hard to have these kind of big horizontal platforms arise and because you don't have these kind of baseline of digitization these system of records as you would see with salesforce then offerings like twilio which are api first which relies on a foundation of system of records which relies on a foundation of almost like digital interface also find it hard to exist because you need a you know, baseline foundation on which to build on for people to even want to use external APIs. Right now, the mentality is, hey, we can just build our own or we have no need for it. But now, right now, the reaction isn't, hey, let's go out and find a solution that does this in an API form because our developers are so busy doing the best of breed work that they need to focus on, um, which is also semi-related to the low cost of digital labor here in China, which also persuades people and workforces to try to build things in-house rather than to outsource them to external SaaS businesses. And that has created a lack of inclination to buy SaaS products as well, which I've also talked about. But to answer your question, yes, I talked to a lot of SaaS startups who mentioned, hey, we saw Databricks and Snowflakes being extremely successful abroad. We want to do something similar. And the question that I always consider and want to discuss with them is, okay, we can definitely do this, but how successful is it going to be? So in your perspective, because I have seen one of your articles about Chinese giants actually struggle to build enterprise software, can you offer some examples of some of these uh, Chinese giants having problems in building enterprise software? So taking a step back, the internet giants currently in China are all 
consumer companies, as we mentioned, is Tencent, is Alibaba, is Meituan. And the logic to make 2C, aka 2 customer, the, the, the 2C logic is very different from the 2B logic, which is how China calls its B2B business or SaaS business. It's slightly similar words, um, but also very different, which is very typical Chinese ecosystem. Because for 2C markets, often you just need to spread your net very wide because there's so many customers in China. And you can just focus on very quick growth, subsidized growth through advertising in order to make things work. You don't actually have to spend a lot of time talking to your customers because you can just A-B test stuff until it works. So that kind of quick reiteration, large market, and then flooding and, and expecting user behavior to change because you'll pay the money is very prevalent in 2C product thinking. And that doesn't work very well for an enterprise because firstly, the market is much smaller. You have no idea how these people these people's workflow work. And as I mentioned, it's you know, not just different within an industry, it's very different throughout different industries. So without some of these kind of methodologies of product design, it's hard to just do, take a team of 2C folks and expect them to churn up brilliant 2B products because it's just almost like taking a brilliant English student and telling him to write me a good mathematical thesis just because you were really great in one category doesn't mean you're going, that's going to automatically transfer to a different category. And then also some things involved with the promotion cycle, right? The KPI setting within a 2C company is not very conducive to producing good 2B products, which might just require longer time. Whereas for 2C, you can expect concrete growth within three months, six months, and then you can make a quick decision by then. But with B2B products, that's just not possible. You need a very long time to do product sales, uh, to understand the customers, to design, to build up a sales team, et cetera, et cetera. So also kind of the system and management within these big tech giants are not also conducive to producing something that's um, going to be very appealing to a enterprise or SMB, et cetera. And also, you know, alongside this, because for these very mature 2C companies, you also have big structures where everyone's writing, you know, feedback cycle reports and then doing what is a very Chinese practice, which they'll have weekly reports or daily reports sometimes where a tech person, coder, manager will write down what they did every single day and send that to their superior or send that to their team. And they'll definitely write one every single week and there'll be quarterly and monthly reports. So it's that actually takes up a huge amount of time, if we think about it, for all of these folks at these big tech firms to do this throughout the year. And at the end of the day, there's very little bandwidth for real innovation and therefore also makes moving to a completely different industry focus with a completely different product logic very hard for these folks. And then one of the last issues you also face is that when you're looking at the world with a 2C lens, Everything has to be, you know, at least a billion dollar plus market for you to get interested. But in the B2B space, that's just not as easy, especially since a lot of companies don't even require these software in the first place. They just require something small or they'll hire someone, right? So the market isn't there. And so for, for big tech, they also have a real difficulty selecting good products to go after because everything to them seems too small and you need so long to get things to work etc etc so all of these small things layered on top of each other actually makes it very difficult for these traditional big tech 
companies to do well in the 2B business, which is, I think, quite quite an encouraging frame of mind when uh, I'm talking to startups. But yeah, I think it's not as obvious from the outset that these you know, wildly successful internet tech giants will actually struggle to pivot to 2B. So we are moving towards a decoupled supply chain world where we live in two systems, the Chinese and the US. We've seen this already in navigation systems, for example, GPS versus the upcoming Beidou system from China on the coordinate side. The Chinese tech companies are now busy expanding their cloud services. We need to adapt their tools to the rest of the world. Truth be told, my nine-year-old daughter was very fluent in Scratch. I discovered recently that Scratch was actually banned in China. And so I went to research on what's the equivalent of Scratch. And I told her, hey, go and take a look. You're bilingual. You should be able to read their documentation. And she came back to me and said, I can hardly understand the API from the Chinese equivalent of Scratch. Which is actually a very interesting data point for me. Because I actually have researched some of our Byte Plus APIs recommendations engines because I've seen them operating in this part of the world when I was with AWS. So I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on how they can actually improve their current offerings to push adoption for the rest of the world? Or will they be just expanding where the other Chinese enterprises are? Very good question. And something I've observed as well, this kind of lack of disconnect with the rest of the developer or software buying product globally. And in my mind, pragmatically, because Chinese tech is nothing but pragmatic, the very first step has to be that they will probably just sell to Chinese firms going abroad and say, hey, you're used to this. How about you know taking this international when you go there? But I think the ambition for all of these tech firms when I talk to them has been, okay, in the long term, though, we will want to be international because that's where the market is. And the market is also developing quite slowly in China. So we have to at least prepare, right, to be more international, to have international developer, uh, developer engagement, um, to have international sales. And the question is, can they find the manpower and find the right product leads and tailor their documentations to actually service this global community? I think there is some hope. PinCap has kind of made progress here and Al Gore to a certain extent as well. So there's kind of one or two successes that Chinese tech can point to and say, hey, they have made steps here and we can copy at least what they've done well in their playbook. But I think it's going to take time. It's going to take time. It's obviously a big cultural issue that firstly, the management has to realize, secondly, has to accept and thirdly, has to adopt concrete changes. And I think on each of these, you're going to get some level of resistance, right? So it's going to take time. This is going to be interesting then. How do you rate the future of cloud computing and SaaS in China? And will they evolve very differently from their US counterparts? I am very long-term bullish, uh, tempered by short-term negative, I guess. I think in the long-term when, and you know, this is one of the reasons I, I moved back of when you look at the Chinese economy with this kind of strong emphasis on manufacturing and the proliferation of small to medium enterprises coupled with the decreasing population, you think this is a market where software would do a lot of good. They'll need to you know, raise productivity with less people. Cloud and software is what's going to really help them do that. Though how quickly can they get there is, I think, the question on every single investor's mind, including myself, especially given 
right now, when you talk to a lot of firms, they're not conceptualizing problems as software problems, right? And I think fundamentally, when we talk about software, and sometimes it's almost, it's never occurred to me when I was in the West, but really what we're doing when we're buying software is buying a system of management. We are saying when you buy Salesforce, this is how you run a sales funnel, right? This is how you think about quota setting. This is how you think about achieving predictable sales. We're actually buying a whole system of management logic behind that software. And we have adopted both a management system as well as a software in order to make everything work. Now, when you come to China, it's interesting because what if people don't adopt that management system of organization in the first place? And therefore, they won't think to use software to solve the issue. If everyone thinks that I can manage my own way and I've been doing very well managing my own way, which objectively they have done. You know, there's many businesses that's done very successfully without ever taking a Western management course, without ever having to think about organizational design. They've made money in the past 10 years. That's one of the boons of the Chinese economy growth. Now you're telling them, okay, this management style that you have, if you can even call it style, you have to change that and you have to buy a software to solve your problems, which are actually management problems. I think that's a very big thing for people to get their head around. And this gets to the fundamental issue of sometimes these firms do not conceptualize their issues as software issues or management issues. They think of them as, we can just hire additional people issues. Let me give you an example. If I have to hire a thousand applicants next year for my very successful business, I might think I should hire 20 more HR folks. I might not think, hey, I should get an applicant tracking system. I should get an HR management system. I might simply think this, this is an issue that can be solved by hiring more people. It would never have occurred to me to go to Baidu and type in what are the best ATS systems or what are the best like workforce management systems because I don't think of these as management systems, as management issues, nor do I think of them as software issues. And I think that's the very fundamental issue that Chinese firms have to really get their head around in order to move forward. And so what I'm now seeing is that process happening almost on a case-by-case basis where 2B businesses are almost doing consulting work with their clients where they're thinking, okay, this is the problem you want to solve and this is how you can think about it as a management problem and how that's actually conceptualized as a software and this is how our software can be that software solution for your management system. But it's almost consulting work, right? You have to talk to them for quite a long time to get them around to this particular way of thinking. And so right now the tragic reality for a lot of Chinese SaaS businesses is that Theoretically, they are SaaS, but actually they're just consulting companies with a technology wrapper since they spend so much of their time doing implementation, doing consulting work, and then often half the time the uh, buyers will also want the technology on-premise because they don't quite trust public clouds. Now that's how are the different kettle of fish. And so you see kind of this dominant strategy um, of having hybrid cloud in China, which uses both private and public and lowest cost, uh, but also heightened security. So from all of this, to me, it seems like China's going to go in a different direction, but I'm not, I'm not sure because as I mentioned at the beginning, what I've seen with the US is that it's kind of gone through kind of three different stages of first digitization and then cloud adoption and then thirdly automation. And they've kind of gone through them through different eras.
first it was during the 70s when you started digitizing and then it kind of picked up in the 80s and then by the time the 2000s came around in the US people moved to the cloud and now everyone's automating everything but in China those three trends are like happening at the same time so both digitization cloud adoption and automation is happening at the same time because you have these SaaS businesses going around being like okay let's digitize you let's move you to the cloud and let's put some AI algorithm quote unquote AI algorithm on that as well so you're smarter so at the end of the process theoretically you do get to the same endpoint but the way to get there is quite different for both US and uh, China and so i kind of see the direction of travel i kind of understand like the obstacles in everyone's way but to me at the end of the day right we still adopt software to increase revenue and to increase efficiency i think the nature of why we adopt software has not changed and therefore for me it's highly likely that we'll actually end up seeing a convergence of sorts especially given what i've also noticed in the west which is there's you know increasingly transaction components to saas businesses which is very prevalent in china as well because people don't want to pay for software but people are happy to pay for transactions so actually a convergence of business models there also for some specific saas businesses in the us they are now also moving to a hybrid cloud given how pricey public cloud has become so also interesting convergences there so um i i'm actually very interested to see how this comes out because i sort of know kind of the routes everyone is taking and i can see why they might diverge but i actually see enough evidence that they might converge at some point as well because the purpose is the same for both that is a very interesting take lilian and i definitely have to get you back on the show to talk more about that in the next time round lilian many thanks for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts on uh, cloud computing and saas in china in closing i have two questions my first question is any recommendations that have inspired you recently So yes, I actually do have a book and it's not related to tech, but um definitely has influenced how I have come to understand Chinese governance and Chinese society. And it's called 1587, A Year of No Significance, uh which is about the late Ming Dynasty by the Chinese historian Ray Huang. And it's actually an incredibly semi-fictional but mostly non-fictional book cobbled together from historical records talking about the prominent figures drawing that particular year including the emperor his magistrates uh literary figures retired generals people sent out in disgrace um and is fascinating to really contemplate how even back then it was so difficult to govern such a large country and you can definitely see uh remnants of that in today's world believe it or not especially has given me some insight into the pace of regulatory environment and the back and forth if if i could be so bold to draw insights from history so that's something i highly recommend that people read if they have any interest in chinese society and governance structure so if ben thompson is the leader lee in western tech so how do my audience find you <laughs> that's very kind yes you can find my newsletter chinese characteristics at substack but um the address is lilianlee@substack.com uh, It's pretty straightforward. Google Chinese characteristics Lilyli and then hopefully find my work interesting enough to uh, read and subscribe. You can find us on Analyze Asia at any podcast platform and you can also tweet to us at Analyze Asia A N A L Y S E Asia. You could definitely help us with a rating on Apple Podcasts, five star rating and a review and I promise to read some of the reviews as I when I see it. So uh Lilyli, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you again. Thank you for having me, Bernard. 